0: Of uh, The context here is that the church in Jerusalem is poor, very poor, uh, and they, uh, they needed a lot of help. And so it was a remarkable thing that Paul went to um, the Gentile churches primarily to uh, raise funds uh, to take care of uh, the brothers and sisters, primarily Jewish uh, believers, uh, in Jerusalem. And so we looked at chapter 8 last week, and then this week he continues that uh, in chapter 9. A quick note about uh, chapter 9, is printed in your bulletin. Uh, typically, uh, the way Paul writes is, uh, before he tells anybody to do anything, he tells them why first, right? Uh, it, most of his epistles start out with two or three chapters about theology, about the gospel, about the grace of God, and then uh, the second half of his letters he typically breaks off into uh, direct instruction about how the gospel impacts marriage or families or uh, our relationship uh, to uh, work or something like that. Chapter 9 is actually the reverse of that, because the first five verses here are all about practical things, about completing the offering to get it ready, because he's going to send uh, some uh, folks, and he may even come himself, to pick up the offering in Corinth, and then they will take it to Jerusalem. And then verses 6 through 15 uh, speak uh, uh, very fully to his theology, uh, his understanding of, uh, of, of why we're going to do this. So, <clears throat> um, that'll help you uh, see a little bit about what's going on here. So Second Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 15. Uh, this is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift You may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So Paul began last week speaking about the whole issue of of generosity and about giving. And one of the things that we noted last week that was true in chapter 8, that's also true in chapter 9, he never uses the word for money. Never. He speaks a lot about grace. He speaks a lot about generosity. He speaks a lot about uh, the gift. But... He never uses the language at all that would describe money. He doesn't do that. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty profound thing. And the other thing that we noted last week was he is, he has just finished in chapter seven speaking about repenting the, the church in Corinth needing to repent over their broken relationship with him. And he moves directly from calling on them to repent to now telling them to complete the offering to give, which is, a pretty profound thing you know we've had this broken relationship you don't like me and i've struggled with you repent now give which is a pretty pretty bold and 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 pretty uh, profound thing for him to do and so he goes on into into this chapter now uh to express uh, to the the church in Corinth the need to go ahead pull the money together the committee of of uh, brothers is coming to pick it up and they will take it on, uh take it on to Jerusalem. Um so the, the and, and then he ends this chapter by speaking about God as the ultimate giver, uh uh and even in our giving we are receiving, that in our giving uh we are reflecting the nature of God. So it's a it's a it's a pretty profound thing. And I I, I think that the whole issue The bottom line about your attitude about giving boils down to how you view God. Really, okay, Scott, go ahead and put my notes up. And I think that's the that's the 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 kind of the central theme that runs through this. Foundational to all of this is how you view God, because that will indicate what's going on in your heart. Because the key issue in this in this text is not the size of the gift uh or or really so much the gift at all but that god has been at work in our hearts that he has uh demonstrated his generosity to us and that overflows out of our lives and so the question then is how will i deal with myself which tends towards selfishness and covetousness now the the thing about it is let me just say you know that when i say that 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 we 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 will all struggle with selfishness and covetousness I, I'm, that's not um, I'm not criticizing when I say that I'm commiserating. <laughs> OK, that's something that's something that's true for all of us. Ever since the fall, when uh, God uh, cursed the land as a result of the sin uh, and the and, and what uh, the, the reality of what would happen was that they would only be able to eat by the sweat of their brow. And not only would they not only be able to eat by the sweat of their brow, but it was going to be hard work because the ground was going to put, produce thorns, and there'd be pests and and diseases and and all of this sort of thing. And so there, there's a there's when I, I can only imagine that that first day after the fall, when Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden, and they're out there and they look about them, and the the, the fruitful garden is no longer fruitful. It's going to require a lot of work, a lot of difficult a lot of difficulty, and actually uh, um, there's the possibility that they might not have enough to go from all you've ever known as having every need met uh it, it, the promise that every bit of work that you do will produce two three hundred percent that there's no question at all about uh, having enough to eat and enough to drink and all of that to suddenly being in a situation where uh, that's, that's not the case will certainly lead us to be in a place where we would covet and be selfish. Because frankly, you never know when you might not have enough. And it's easy to go from thinking you might not have enough to making sure that as far as it depends on you, you will see to it that you you and yours always have enough. And so this fear kind of drowns out any kind of appropriate view of stewarding, stewardship of the gifts and the work that God gives us. Um I've told this story before and I I but I I still think it's 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 a it's a very telling example back in uh um, 2000 the reason why I'm thinking about this I was setting up a thing on my computer and you know you have to do these passwords and when you're 58 almost 58 there's too many passwords and there's there's too many usernames and there's you know and I think, well, I should write them down. But isn't that kind of the point? You're not supposed to write them down because you're supposed to keep them secret. I can't keep up with it. So I was trying to do something, and it was asking for my password, and I couldn't remember my password. And the security question was, what were you doing on uh, uh, New Year's Eve 1999? Now, remember... Y two K? Do you remember that? Some of you probably don't remember that, but the world was going to come to an end. All the computers were going to blow up. Nuclear reactors were going to explode. Uh, traffic lights would quit. Uh, uh, you know everything. The, the electrical grid was going to go down. The world was going to die. Well, I was at a party. <laughs> um, So that's what I put down there. And I was remembering that because I had a conversation, Marty and I had a conversation with a member of our family who leading up to that said, have y'all stored a lot of food? Have you stored a lot of water? And we were like, well, yeah, we got a couple of gallons of water. And yes, we have a few cans of beans and some cans of tuna. Uh, But really, you know, We don't, we don't have a lot. And then their question was, well, do you have a gun? And I'm like, well, why would we need a gun? Well, what are you going to do if people want your tuna and your beans? (laughs) And, and my wife said to her dear loved one, you mean to tell me? that if my neighbor is starving and they come to my house to ask for food, I'm going to shoot them? (laughs) And this person said, well, yes, you are going to shoot them because they're taking beans and tuna away from your family. Um, To which she responded, well, if things are that bad, Jesus just needs to take us and we just need to be done with this. Because I'm not going to shoot my neighbor for a can of tuna. Now, what might I shoot you for? That's the question. Not for a can of tuna, but you never know. You know, I might need to hold on to some things. I, hmm. This, hmm. Being generous being generous, mm, maybe I need to be careful about that. So the sparing heart, that is the one that hoards, <clears throat> that can't see uh, uh, generosity as a gift, has a relationship to God that feels him as a taker rather than a giver and 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 i would even expand that that, that maybe uh, maybe you're not so embittered against god that you see him as someone who takes but maybe you don't even see him as a giver or taker at all that this part of your life the part that has to do with your money and your labor and those sorts of things is a is a part of your life that's completely separated from god that god has no interest in that or at, 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 or maybe your viewpoint is, uh, that it's none of God's business how much money you have. Or maybe you think it's none of, none of God's business, uh, how much you give. Right? So if my life is being drained away by God because He is so incessantly and solely demanding, then I feel like grasping after the things of the world to meet my need. If every time I look up, I see the pointing finger of God demanding, give me, give me, give me. How can I look back down at the needs of the world and say, take me? I will gladly spend and be spent for your good. Oh, this person will give something. uh, Because one of the draining demands that he hears when he looks to this ever demanding, ever taking God is give something to the church. Uh, isn't it good that God said that and not me, right? Right? So out comes the gift, the draining, life-depleting, exhausting, sparing gift. But what a difference between this gift and the gift that flows from the heart that has a relationship with God that feels him as a giver rather than a taker. Right? Right? So whatever else may be true about God, whatever else you may think about him at at his very heart, as we've already sung today, that God is love. God is love. And, and if God is love, then you know, and I know that when when we are moved by love towards another person, what do we want to do? We want to give to them. We want to bless them. We want to see them flourish. We want to see them do well. We want to give to them. And so so uh, so the, the thing that we have to see about this is if that's the central character of God, that God is love, that he is gracious, that he is merciful and that in his strength and in his justice, he he pours out, he lavishes gifts upon his people. If that's the case, if that's the truth, then then how does that reorient the way I think about my heart? How does that reorient the way I think about my money? How does that reorient the way I think about being generous, right? So we have to say, then, does the gospel itself point to God as a giver or a taker? And many of us have confused the gospel with with something that's not true. It's like this, God, God sent Jesus into the world to die for my sins, And that is such an imposing thing that now he stands back from me and he demands that I pay him back. Right now, that's a pretty stark way of saying that. But for many of us, that is the burden that we carry around, that God God gives a gift. But that gift comes with strings attached and an expectation that we're going to give back to him. When in fact... God certainly instructs us to be generous. God certainly instructs us to, to repent of our selfishness and our coveting. God, God certainly calls on us to repent of, of thinking that, 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 um, uh, that we live uh, in relationship with a God of scarcity. But in fact, in fact, the heart of God the profound nature of the gift of Jesus Christ is so large and so overwhelming that any giving we do in response to that, God loves it. He blesses it. But the fact of the matter is, your standing with him, your place with him does not depend upon what you give. In fact, the Gospel's so big, His grace is so profound. you can go to heaven and never give a penny. so let's just put that out there, okay um, That's a risky thing for a pastor to say, isn't it? <laughs> right? So does the gospel itself point to a God as a giver or a taker? Well, the whole thing that runs through this text is the clear teaching that at at, at the very heart of God is overflowing grace and generosity. So now verses 1 through 5 are the final exhortation and instruction about the gift. And then verses 6 through 15 expresses more teaching about the motivation and the theology of giving. Now, what I think is hilarious about uh, these first five verses is you probably missed the very subtle pressure and not so subtle pressure that Paul's putting on the church in Corinth. Did you see that? Because what he says here is, so it's, you know, it's superfluous. It It's, you know... I don't really need to say anything to you to write about the ministry to the saints because I know you're ready to do it. And I boast about you. Remember, we talked about that last week, that he's bragging to all the other churches about the people in Corinth about he's certain that they'll be generous. And so, in fact, he has he's boasted specifically to the churches in Macedonia, saying that the churches in Achaia, which is the area around Corinth, has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. So, so what Paul did is he went to the churches in Macedonia and said, the people in Corinth are going to give. They're going to be generous. They've heard the gospel. They, they, they believe that they belong to those folks in Jerusalem and so they're going to give. So that stirs the people in Macedonia. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. I said, you'd be ready. So I'm sending somebody. What's the subtle message there? Get ready. Here they come to take up the offering, because remember, I bragged about you. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me, in other words, the very people that I bragged uh, about you too the the people that I said hey I'm going to bring some of these people that I brag uh, about, about you too I'm going to bring these Macedonians and they find that you're not ready I'll be humiliated I bragged on you you come on don't let me down right you need to come through right so he's he's used the um uh, uh the Macedonians and the Corinthians to say hey you know let's Let's, uh, the, the Macedonians are doing it. The Corinthians are doing it. So now I need y'all to do it <laughs> to, to come through with your generosity so that I won't be humiliated. So there's a little bit of pressure there, but I think it's a pressure, uh, based on grace, based on the ultimate thing that God has done already with them in, in, in Jesus. Now he doesn't have, you know, it's unlike uh, some, some giving programs where you have a thermometer out there and you, where you say, well, the Macedonians have given this much and the Corinthians are given this much. And so let's see who can get the, the prize at the end, right? That, that's not what he's doing. He's just simply saying, look, God is good. And, and he's, he's using you to encourage this group of people and this group of people God is using to encourage you. Just be generous, right? So Corinth was the instrument in God's hand in Macedonia, just as the Macedonians to be God's instrument towards the Corinthians. So behind all of this is God moving in his people to make them generous and to look upon one another to be encouraged. Well, if they can give, I can give. Um, So I'm going to take a, a, a bit of a risk now to just to tell you something that happened to me this morning. Um, so I always get here early, uh, and uh, I walk across the gallery, uh, 645-ish usually, just to look and uh, see how things are going. And when I walk by the middle doors out here, there was an envelope laying on the floor that someone had shoved through the little gap in the door and left it here. I don't know what's in this envelope, but this person says, and if you're here this morning, we're going to pray for you because they asked us to, please pray for me. I'm very poor and have a great deal of despair in my life at this time. I need a better path for my life. Actually, I thought, wow, this could have been any one of the 750 people who walked through these <laughs> doors. Uh, have a great deal of despair in my life at this time. I need a better path for my life. I think as I look at you, I think all of you probably could use a better path in your life, right? I know I could. Please bless this seed in his name. And the back says, faith will prevail. Now I thought I'm, you know, I'm Presbyterian and I don't believe in much weirdness, you know, strange things. But the fact that this text speaks about seeds and sowing, and they said, please bless this seed in his name, made me think, wow, someone like a Macedonian in their poverty is giving. I love this place that things like this happen. Um, What a profound thing for us to think about this morning as we look at then Paul's theology um, of giving. Because what he wants us to understand is this. Paul makes clear that all true giving is dependent upon the prior giving of God. And I would submit to you that your understanding of the depth and the height and the profound value of the gift and gifts that you've been given in Jesus Christ. And let me just say right here, when I say, for many of you, the gifts that you've been given in Jesus Christ, you probably tend to immediately go to a place of, oh, that's a spiritual thing not a material thing. Well, in the economy of the gospel, you cannot separate them because God is the giver of whatever you have, period. Period. Next slide, please, Scott. So he says, and he uses in this, Uh, This example of agriculture where he says the produce of the field is essential to human life and existence, right? We have to have, we have to plant seeds in the ground. We have to till the ground. We have to work the ground. We have to harvest those seeds, right? And without that, there would be no human life. So it's essential to human life and existence. And without the fundamental goodness of God that is richly and daily granted to us, human life could not continue, Do you understand that? That seems so alien to most of our experience, right? It seems so strange to us to think, you know, it probably never occurs to you when you walk in a grocery store and you see... Every imaginable vegetable, some that I've never heard of before, it's amazing the amount of the, the, the kinds of produce and the kinds of fruits and vegetables and all of those things that that this, this good earth produces. It is, it's stunning. But every time you walk into a grocery store, every time you take a bite of something that, that, that has, has come from the soil, you need to understand that you only have that Because God gave it to you. That human existence is only possible because God loves human beings. There is no other way to think about it. So without the fundamental goodness of God that is richly and daily granted us, human life could not continue. No matter how much we labored, no matter how clever we might be. Um, I grew up on a farm. I know how to plant things. I know how to make things grow. I really do. I know how to do that. There aren't many things I know how to do, but that's one thing I know how to do. I know how to plant. I know how to cultivate. I know how to fertilize. I know how to water. I know how to harvest. And so it's very frustrating that I live in a place where... That's that's very difficult. And in fact, there are many days where I would rather do that in my yard than just about anything else. So this year um, I have developed a taste, a taste for pickled okra. Only people in the South know what I'm talking about, probably, but pickled okra. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to plant a lot of okra. And we're going to pickle it, and I'm going to eat a lot of pickled okra this fall. Uh, Well, uh, the problem with that is that the bunnies in my neighborhood like it more than I do. So much so that I found myself praying... Some of the psalms about God destroying our enemies, <laughs> about the bunnies in my neighborhood. There's a the great psalm about breaking the teeth of our enemies, and I thought, that's so appropriate. <laughs> but the fact of that is, that's, a, that's, a, that's a kind of a silly but a good illustration to show to us. You can put that seed in the ground. But the distance of time between you put that seed in the ground and you cut that okra off that stalk, there's the intervention of God. Not to mention the fact that God gave me the seed to begin with and gave me the ability to put the seed into the ground. Not only that, that he gives water, that he gives fertilizer, and that in his good pleasure, he either keeps the bunnies out of my garden or lets them in. So whether I have okra or not, Uh, ultimately, no matter what I do, is dependent upon him. So so you may get up tomorrow morning and you may go to work and you may think, it all depends on me. It does not depend on you. You need to work. But the fruitfulness of your labor, the very ability of you to get up and go to work in the first place, the very fact that you have a place to work, the very fact that anything gets done at all is due to the mercy and the grace of God. So what you have to see is that God's the giver of growth and there and in our, our response to that and our in our giving, this is not an exchange where I work hard and then God gives. Our labor are more like acts of participation in what God has done and will do. In other words, what we are doing is we are stepping into the stream of God's activity and participating in what God is already doing in, in blessing and in uh, uh, providing, right? So what Paul says here is that God supplies both the seed and the harvest, and that's the thing that we have to kind of understand about what we do and how we labor and and the effects and the fruit of our labor is that there is no place, no part of your life, whether it's your work life or 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 your family life or anything like that, where there's blessing that did not come from God. So he goes on to say here in this text that God loves the cheerful giver. Now, one of the things that you know we talk about that, and the way we we tend to think about that is, is that that God looks upon us, and and he, what He wants from us is people who are struck by His generosity, struck by His grace, and therefore are about the business of then responding to that. But that's that's a little that's a, that's a little simplistic because what it's what what He says here is is that God loves the cheerful giver. There's no mention in that text about the size of the gift. And not only is there no mention in the size of the gift, it doesn't say that God loves cheerful gifts. (laughs) It says that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves people. He loves persons, right? And so that is the whole orientation and movement that he has towards us is that he loves us. And because he loves us, he loves when his people... Begin to look like Him, because the only ultimate cheerful giver in the whole universe is God Himself. Because He gladly gives. He joyfully gives. He, for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning the shame and so so, even at the the darkest, hardest, most profound sacrifice in the heart of God, there is a sense of joy in that and a sense of cheerfulness that is ultimate about the uh, the, the personality of God. And so, when God says that he loves a cheerful cheerful giver, he sees uh, a, a similarity between us and him. He sees his character being manifest in us. I said this last week at Bears saying again, listen, if you want to be looking more and more like Jesus, the answer to that is not so much about sinning less, although you should sin less, but to see yourself like your heavenly father, like your big brother Jesus Christ in generosity. So the size of the gift does not affect God's love. Rather, the heart of the giver is what matters. It matters because it reflects the character of God himself. Um, In fact, you know, Jesus, uh, we uh, we read that when Jesus stood at the temple and he watched the gifts that were being given, the only gift that he commended was the, the, the widow who gave all that she had. And it was the tiniest gift in terms of our value that was given that day, right? So for us, to understand and to appreciate the heart of God, what God desires is for us, in response to his grace, in response to uh, the trust that he provides every single thing, grace, mercy, food, water, shelter, all of those things, that that moves me then to make sure that I participate in in that ministry that he has with others. It is no small thing that when Jesus Christ taught us to to pray, when he told us to call God our Father in heaven, and that we would hallow and honor his name, that he included in that this phrase, give us this day our daily bread. Now the thing to note about that is, is that that reflects, give us this day our daily bread. Give us today what we need today to do what you've called us to do today. Daily. Right? So, what, what you have to, what you have to see about that is, that's, that is a, an allusion, honestly, to the Old Testament pattern when the children of Israel were wandering in the, uh, uh, in the wilderness, and God gave them every day manna to eat, just for that day. And if they hoarded it, it got worms. So what he's saying there to us is that he know that he is expressing to us: I know what you need. I know you need to eat. I know you need to drink. I know that there are certain things that are true about being a human being that you need. And and you should pray for those things because the source of those things is your father in heaven. And so Paul goes on here to say in this that 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 what has happened is that God makes us self-sufficient, that he makes us he uses that word sufficiency to help us to understand that sufficiency is not ultimately about ourselves, but our understanding of how it is that God has gifted us and then how we then pour that gift out to others. So he says we're made in whatever sufficiency we we have to look like our creator and redeemer. So God's giving us self-sufficiency, God giving us a job, God giving us food to eat, God giving us these things so that we can live and to be is not just simply for ourselves, but so that that sufficiency of what we have would go on to be a blessing to others. Next slide please, Scott. So when we give, then he rounds off this this passage by saying that we can look for two things. First of all, we'll see the fruit of our trust and submission to Christ in God's glory, right? This is a this is a this is a profound uh, thing. He says, by their approval of the service, by the saints in Jerusalem saying, look at what the people in Corinth have done for us. They'll glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ, while the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Now, what's profound about that is who's giving the gift to the people in Jerusalem? Who's doing it? Because you know what we could do. One of the ways we could motivate people is to say, "Listen, if you give them this gift, they'll thank you. They'll they'll glorify you." Which honestly doesn't that kind of appeal? I mean, um, don't uh, don't don't we want people to recognize our generosity? Um. Uh, the, a, a place I go to uh, in, in the summer r- regularly has people 's names on the, the bricks that you walk up on i guess they 've given to this entity they have names on their bricks, which I think is kind of an odd way to honor people because you 're walking on them you 're you 're stepping on them but but when you walk up you reckon, you see you know well Mr. and Mrs. Smith obviously gave to this entity their name is is right there, and so Uh, I think, well, you know, I I guess we should thank them that that they did this. What Paul says here is, listen, Corinth, be generous. And when you're generous, the people in Jerusalem are not just going to be grateful to you, but more importantly, they're going to glorify God. They're going to see the work of Christ in your obedience and your submission and your trust in God. And that will cause them to for their hearts to be encouraged and, and strengthen and encourage their reliance upon and their faith in the God who loves them. And then secondly, he says that we'll see Thanksgiving, right? Um, he says uh, that as a result of this, the saints are also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. We'll see thanksgiving to God, not just to us, because he's behind every gift. It's not the persons or the churches that are so outstanding, but the grace of God, which is upon them. Their gift points beyond themselves to the God who is first and foremost, the giver. Right. And so so wherever we go, whatever we do, when we are being generous and other people uh, receive gifts from us, what that should lead them to do is not just think, wow, you know, Steve's really generous. But what it should lead people to do is to say, Steve is generous because God is so great. God is so loving. The work of Jesus Christ is so profound. So that, 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 that the thanksgiving and the recognition of that doesn't just, just stop with us, but it goes to the ultimate source of all generosity, uh, in, uh, in the universe. And then he ends by saying, thanks be to God for the indescribable gift. Now what is something that's indescribable? Something that is indescribable is something you can't describe. Something that's indescribable is so big, so wonderful, so profound, so so terrific that uh that you can't you can't even uh begin uh to describe it. Um, have you ever eaten something that was so good? you just couldn't describe how good it was and that the only way another person could share in that with you is if they ate it too which means you'd have to share <laughs> right have you have you ever have you ever been uh, so so what paul ends up saying here is listen you have to understand that you have received the indescribable gift, the gift that is so big, so profound, that you'll have to get to heaven uh, to be able to fully understand and see and, and appreciate the gift. So so what do we know about the gift? Well, we know its contours. We can get a sense of the shape of it, right? It involves God's self-giving in Christ, the wonder of his taking upon himself our poverty, sin, and guilt uh, the wonder in which, as we said a couple of weeks ago, remember the the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet, who was uh, uh, rich for your sakes, became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Um, it entails Christ's grace, which not only meets our every need, but elevates us to share in his giving. So not only does he meet our needs, but he puts us in a place to actually participate with him in the blessing of others. And it creates the very context in our community where, where we know one another, where we're close enough to one another in Christ to be able to express that uh, along with one another. But even that's a poor description. We, we will never be able to sing or to worship or to glorify God uh, as, as fully as we ought in response to his grace because it is so much bigger than anything we're able to do. Is so much grander, so much more wonderful, so much more profound. Your sin is so great; His grace is greater still. Your poverty is so deep; His riches so much greater. So that that whatever we look at, any way we try to describe this, it's impossible to describe it. In other words, like, have you ever tried to to explain to a four year old the Trinity? Right. And, and and it is so hard to explain that because it's so big and it's so mind-blowing and it's so profound. Well, the same thing is true of the very nature of the gospel. The gift of Jesus Christ to us is so grand that words pale. And that all we can do to help one another come to any kind of grips of describing the gift is what little we have of it, we share it in word, in deed, in generosity, so that our brothers and sisters get a taste and a glimpse of the indescribable gift. You have the privilege to participate in the work of God in the distribution of his gifts to his people and to the world. What a privilege. You're God's partner. You're working and participating in and with him. What what a rich, elevating thing he has done for us. So let's pray that he helps us to believe that. Let's pray for our brother or sister uh, who uh, planted a seed through the, the um uh, middle doors uh, this morning. And let's ask him uh, to help us come to grips with his generosity to us. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you thanking you for your grace and your mercy. And